I had fun looking at all the designer masks this morning. Uh, I know none of us like to wear a mask to church, but we had sparkles and glitters and multicolors and purples and whites and black and whites and the standard blue like I wear, you know, that uh, everybody gets handed out free when you forget your mask. And, and uh, so anyway, it was fun to see all of you that way. But I had another impression this morning before I get into the message, and that was just how extravagantly God loves you. And I wish I was a prophet and could prophesy over you, and somehow you could experience what I sensed in the Spirit just momentarily about how deeply and how extravagantly God loves each of you. Wherever your life is taking you, whatever you're going through right now, doesn't matter. The hairs of your head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing about it. And God cares about you. Uh, your picture's on his refrigerator door, and he's just excited to love you. And uh, I want you to know that. Uh, I'm going to speak this morning on the subject of dare to share, or will you pass by? I'm not going to read my text, however, for, for a little bit here. So just hang with me, and then eventually we'll get to Luke 10. Dare to share, or will you pass by? Sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with non-believers is something all Christians are commanded to do. Now, I'm going to say that again. We don't like it. We're, not, we're uncomfortable with it, but I want to say it again. Sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with non-believers is something that all Christians are commanded to do. For Ramona and I, it's been one of our spiritual disciplines. Uh, when I say spiritual disciplines, I'm referring to prayer. That's a spiritual discipline of a disciple follower of Jesus Christ. Or reading your Bible, that's a spiritual discipline of a disciple follower of Jesus Christ. Sharing your faith is one of those spiritual disciplines. In Ramona's case, she was uh, raised by her, maybe the correct word is reared. You raise pigs, you rear children. So she was reared by uh, her grandparents in Spokane, Washington, her mother, her father was gone. He was an alcoholic and a gambler, and he just disappeared out of the scene. And her mother was unable to rear her, so her grandparents brought her up. And uh, she went to an Assembly of God church. That was back in the days when you went to church three times a week. Does anybody here remember that? You would go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then you'd go to church on Wednesday. Um, I was not used to that until I gave my heart to Jesus, and then I discovered people went to church more often than I was aware of it. That's, that's what she did back then. And one Sunday morning, or perhaps several Sunday mornings in a row, Ramona's Sunday school teacher saw her weeping, saw tears coming out of her eyes. And being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, she went over to her during the invitation and the altar call at the end of the service and said, Ramona... I saw the tears in your eyes. Would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior today and repent of your sins? And she said yes. And, and so her Sunday school teacher drew her aside and uh, led her to Jesus. And she accepted Christ as her Savior. Uh, that started her on a road of commitment to Jesus to share her faith with others. Now you think, well, at five years old, you really couldn't have a, a deeply anchored kind of experience with Christ. Actually, that's not true. Um, most of the statistics show, well, in fact, all statistics and research shows that 80% uh, of all decisions for Christ happen under the age of 18, 
and many of them are in the four, five, six, seven-year-old range. It happens all the time, and it's life-changing. It's transformative. Ramona, when she was in high school, she was an active part of Youth for Christ Club. She would uh, remember David Wilkerson going to New York, and he wrote the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. She would pass that out to all of her unsaved friends and then invite them to Youth for Christ Club and see them saved. And it was just, it was, it was something that she did. In my case, I wasn't five years old or six years old, even though I was churched. I was very churched, as a matter of fact. But I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. I have to say that a lot of people had input into my coming to Christ. Uh, and that's usually the case. Uh, I read a story one time of a young man in a Baptist church that stood up on Sunday morning and accepted Christ and, and was baptized in water that morning. It was, and the pastor just on a whim said, how many people have had input into this young man's life? And uh, 37 people stood up. You know, his Sunday school teacher, his, the person that held him in the nursery and rocked him and prayed over him, and, and, you know, the youth pastor, and all these different people stood up and had input into, into his life. And that's the way it was with me, you know, uh, coaches and drama and youth group and, uh, oh, I, you know, pastors and Sunday school teachers. And, and, uh, but it, I didn't encounter Christ in a personal way until I was 17, almost out of high school. It was a missionary evangelist from Argentina. It was an evening when it was his last day there to speak. Uh, he'd been there for nearly a month in this small church in Wichita, Kansas. And I felt like every word he said was directed to me. In fact, I almost accused my parents of going to him before the service and telling him all about my life because it was just too personal. And it was like the Holy Spirit was taking a razor-sharp edge and just cutting deep down into me and doing an autopsy on my spirit and everything about me. And uh, I didn't wait for an invitation. I, I wasn't familiar with invitations in the church I grew up was, was really liberal. It was a downtown mainline Protestant church, and we didn't have invitations or responses to altar calls. And so I, I was so moved by God. I had a Damascus Road experience. I got out of my chair in the back of the church where you guys are back there, and I ran in front of everybody to the front and knelt at an altar and wept my way to Calvary in a pool of tears and was totally changed overnight. When I got up the next morning, uh, my language had changed, my choice of friends had changed, uh, my vision for life had changed. And uh, the people that invited our family to the church that night was a couple by the name of Retha and Brownie Cox. Um, Brownie wasn't his real name. It was a nickname, and I never did ask him what his real name was. I don't, today, I don't know what his real name is, but I know that he didn't waste any time inviting me to go down to Skid Row in Wichita, Kansas, and with the others, I, I didn't have any formulas. I didn't know Romans Road. I didn't, didn't know what to tell people about, except I met Jesus, and he had changed me. And there to the homeless and to the hurting and to the broken that were down there, we would share Christ and take them inside to this little building that we had on the front row of Skid Row and share Christ with them and pray with them and lead them to the Lord. Ramona and I have both done this for a lifetime. Second um, Corinthians 5.17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. Uh, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's enough. Well, let's just stop there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. I'm quoting it in King James. I'm sure you're seeing it in NIV behind me up here. Um, so that's what Ramon and I have done. We got married in 1967, and uh, we found ourselves in Lodi, California. Uh, we didn't make hardly any money at all. We were youth pastors of a church that stretched to hire youth pastors, and uh, we rented from a, a home in a, from a guy that lived in the church and gave us a special price, and uh, Chuck and Bobby Musinski lived next door to us. Um, Bobby and Chuck were both heavy drinkers and heavy smokers. In fact, I don't think I ever saw Bobby. We lived there about a year. I don't think I ever saw her without a cigarette in her fingers. But they were very friendly and open, and we visited and shared with them for a year. And at the end of the year, we had an opportunity to ask them to invite Jesus into their life. The first Bible I ever owned that I kept as long as I could until it started falling apart has Chuck's tears on the pages of the Bible. I had it open as I was telling him about Jesus, and he just broke out and wept, and his tear stains are on the, on the flyleaf of my Bible. And Bobby, too, gave her heart to Jesus. It was a beautiful thing to see. We, we left there, and we went to uh, Wichita, Kansas, eventually went back to my home, to my home area. And we lived about a block or a block and a half from a couple by the name of Bob and Lorraine Moorfield. Bob and Lorraine had a whole lot more money than we did. They both had good jobs at Beach Aircraft. She worked for an executive as, a, as an executive assistant, and I forget what, what Bob did. But they had a little girl, Kimmy, the same age as our daughter, Eileen, and there was an elementary school across the street. And so Ramona would take Eileen over there to play on the school, and Lorraine would show up with Kimmy, and they met each other, and one thing led to another, and then we played table games and card games together. And we were sharing Christ with them all along the way. One of my happiest memories was when Lorraine announced to us that she and Bob had given their hearts to Jesus, that joined the church and were baptized in water. And she was so happy to tell us that. We moved from there. That was Apache Street. We moved to Woodlawn Street. Two little brand new homes. Uh, we made such a little amount of money that we qualified for a government program called, it was a HUD 235 program. It was an income subsidized program. We bought our first house. We only had to pay $200 down to buy the house. And the government paid part of our payment for us. That's how we got in it because we'd rented everything up to that time, apartments and houses. And next door to us was a single mom and her two children. The mom was always busy, gone to work. And the older boy that was older in high school was off with his friends all the time. And that left Sally home, little freckled face, freckled face, redheaded girl. And she was there all the time, and she would come over and play with our kids and take care of them for us. And we would just befriend her and, and just had fun with her. And, and one day, Pat Boone, does that name ring a bell to anybody? Pat Boone, the famous recording artist and movie star of April Love, I know I'm dating myself now in a really big-time way. Uh, uh, he was also an author, a best-selling author, wrote a book called A New Song. Uh, Pat Boone was coming to town to do a Jesus rally in our new convention center in downtown Wichita. And we said, Sally, we're going to go hear Pat Boone. Why don't you come with us? So she went with us. And uh, I'll never forget, Pat gave this wonderful invitation of how Christ had changed his life and surely his wife's life. Just a, a tremendous transformation. 
And Sally just stood up and started walking down the aisle in this big convention center. There were thousands of people there. In fact, so many people came to Christ that night as everybody was leaving out in front of the convention center were um, these, these water fountains, great big pools and water fountains, and people just started getting baptized spontaneously in the fountains out on the street because God, God just moved in an amazing way. But uh, this was what we, we... I'll tell you one more story then. We moved from there um, to Mays. By that time, I'd received several promotions in work and was making more money, and we were able to move to the side of town where Wichita was expanding to the north and to the west, and we moved in on uh, Mars Street. We lived on Mars. That's right. We lived on Mars. And... Uh, there was a Christian coffee house downtown Wichita called the Dandelion. It was left over from the Jesus People Movement days. And uh, we would take our two junior high school kids, Eileen and Jeff, to that. And uh, there were other kids that we met in the neighborhood. Now, that was before SUVs and seatbelt laws and all that kind of stuff. Back then, we all drove station wagons, and I had a Dodge station wagon, and we would get in the front seat, and we'd put the kids in the car, and then we would get Terry and Pat and Amy and Lisa, all the kids in the neighborhood. We'd just jam them in the back. They didn't have seatbelts on or anything. They didn't have any protective anything. They were just in the back of the, of the Dodge wagon, and we would drive downtown to the Dandelion, and there at the Dandelion, they always showed a faith-based movie every Friday night, and we would go down there, and they'd see a faith-based movie, and Terry and Pat and Amy and Lisa all gave their hearts to Jesus, and then in high school, at Mays High School, Jeff and Eileen befriended Greg and Brad and Brian and all three of those young men gloriously gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. Greg uh, had had, I think it was polio when he was a young man, and he had, he had a limp. He couldn't play sports like the other boys, so he was always the manager on the sports teams. And uh, Greg is a pastor today, a senior pastor of a thriving church. Um, as Christians, we are commanded to share our faith with non-believers and unchurched people. Now, I want to, Jesus always taught with stories and parables. So I want to give you four hypothetical stories. And I'm going to actually ask for responses as I give you these stories, okay? Uh, you can nod your head or wave your hand or lift it or something like that. But I'm, I'm, I'm drawing you in. I, I'm not going to bait and switch, but I'm drawing you in in these stories, okay? Story number one, imagine you are driving late at night. Nearly all of Pierce County's already gone to bed. In your car headlights, you see an accident unfold. A deer races across the road. The oncoming car has no chance to move. So it hits the big buck when it's all over. The eerie darkness is interrupted only by the headlights of the wrecked vehicle wrapped around a huge Douglas fir tree at the side of the road. I actually had an experience like this back in Wichita. It wasn't a fir tree, but it was serious. No one else was around. You stop. You rush over to the car. Peering through the shredded metal and the shattered glass, you see a driver bloody and barely breathing. You have your phone with you, but you don't want to get involved. Strangely, you return to your car and you drive on, leaving the driver to bleed out and die. Really? 
Is there anybody in this auditorium that would do that? I don't think there's one of us. I see your heads going like this. I mean, I know you're, you're in on this with me. We, we would all do what we could to help, wouldn't we? Of course we would. Story number two. Your third story doctor appointment is just concluded. Everybody else uses the elevator, but you like to burn calories, so you choose the stairs. On this particular day, there's only one other hearty soul in the stairwell. Apparently, she is a calorie counter too. You hear a loud thud behind you. Turning around, you see the senior lady sprawled on the steps, the side of her head separated by a huge gash and bleeding profusely. I had this happen to me. She is unconscious. You panic, feeling helpless. The sight of blood frightens you. Running down the flight of stairs that are remaining, you dash through the parking lot, jump into your car, and drive away. Really? Is that what you would do? You're in high school, having the time of your life. It's a beach party. But when a classmate ODs on cocaine out in the surf, you just leave her lying there. She ran with a bad crowd anyway. She probably deserves it. Everybody knows her home life is miserable. Rumor has it she's been abused, but you don't want to get involved in this mess. Really? You would just leave her there in the surf to drown as high tide comes in or die from her overdose on drugs? You're hiking along a steep mountain ridge with a good friend. He slips and falls over a precipice. You peer over the edge carefully. 20 yards below you, barely hanging onto a rock. He shouts, drop the rope, drop the rope. I can't hang on much longer. In your backpack is a life-saving rope, and you ponder, am I going to have the strength to hold him and lift him? Maybe he'll pull me over the edge. Deciding you are ill-equipped, not strong enough, you determine to let someone else attempt the rescue, and you just hike onward. Really? Anybody here do that? Anybody here do that? In each of these modern-day parables, you had the means to save a life, a phone, a rope, a helping hand, whatever it might have been. And you've made it clear to me today that in no instance would you have moved on. You'd have gotten engaged. You would have gotten involved. But I have a question for you today. Is there a difference in God's eyes? between physical death and spiritual death. Isn't spiritual death just as real? Just as important? And maybe we should ask ourselves the question, isn't it even more important? Because physical death is temporary. Spiritual death is eternal. And it matters forever. Our text is Luke 10, 25 to 37. I'll read it out of the NIV. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. Jesus said, how do you read it? And he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those are actually Old Testament scriptures. In fact, the first one is taken out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which uh, the Israelites or the Jews, and still do today, called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. 
a conservative Orthodox Jewish person every single day quotes the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then this particular expert in the law added a passage from Leviticus 19.18, which says, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the expert in the law asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. That was a priest. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, we don't have time to discuss this, but in the chapter before the one we're reading, the Samaritans put Jesus down and offense, should have offended him, would have offended us. And yet Jesus uses the Samaritan as the good guy in the story right after, immediately after that. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look, after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And of course, you know this story. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do that likewise. Go and do likewise. Four major, there's a lot of takeaways from this, but just let me mention four major takeaways. Number one, this entire story is encapsulated and framed in the subject of what must I do to inherit eternal life. That should make your eyebrows raise. That should be a little prick of the spirit in your heart. This parable is about how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus is responding. This is about eternal life. That makes it pretty major, doesn't it? The second one Having religion or going to church, apparently, while it can be good and is good, didn't make a difference in this case. It wasn't about talk. It was about walk. Some Christians can talk Christianity by the yard and can't walk it by the inch. We're all guilty of that, I'm sure. Number three. If being a priest or a Levite doesn't matter, what does matter? Well, clearly the message is getting involved, engaging your resources and your time and your life. Number four, the acid test is just having compassion. Katie, I loved it that in the songs that we sang this morning, every one of them had a strong theme about love, divine the amazing love, the firm foundation of our life. I mean, it was there, this love was there over and over, this extravagant love that God has demonstrated to us that we're, because he loved us, we're supposed to pass that on and love others. And this is, this is something that we're asked to do. So, but, so you said to me this morning, 
in my parables that you would not pass by. You said that you wouldn't leave, that you'd stop and help, that you'd get involved. And yet every single day of our lives, and I'm, I'm including myself with you, there's no condemnation here. There's an honest inquiry of the heart. All around us, people are going down the third time and we pass by. All around us, people are broken and bruised and battered and homeless and hurting and helpless. The last, the least, the lost. And we pass by. You know, Pastor Dustin just either last week or a week before in his message used a very famous scripture in one of his sermons, 2 Timothy 3.16. If you're familiar with studying about the word of God itself, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In, in your NIV, it says all scripture is God-breathed. And it is, but we always stop there. We, we don't particularly care for the rest of that passage. It says all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for, we like the teaching and the training, but what it says, it's useful or it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so no condemnation here at all, but I'm willing to be rebuked by the Holy Spirit. I'm willing to be corrected by the Holy Spirit if it will change the way that I live and that I can start genuinely, authentically getting involved and not passing by. Will you dare to share or will you pass by? So where's the disconnect? There has to be a reason, right? There has to be a reason. We See, we know the answer, don't we? We know who the answer, capital A, is. We know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Where's the disconnect? What, what's going on? Because... Please know, I think you were totally sincere to me. You were, I, you were totally believable when you said to me this morning, you'd call on the phone or you'd give the rope or you'd lend a helping hand. So where's the disconnect? What are we missing? What, what is the reason why we don't share our faith, why we don't get involved with the lives of lost people? And it's actually not one reason. There's multiple reasons. And I want to share seven of them with you this morning. The first one is spiritual apathy. Probably the primary reason one does not share Jesus is best explained by the words disobedience and apathy. When we fail to obey God's word, it progressively creates spiritual lethargy or spiritual apathy. Like um, we all know about arteries and cholesterol, right? And it just builds up and it builds up. And what does it finally do? It cuts off the life flow of the blood and you don't get oxygen to the heart. When, when we aren't growing, when we aren't intentional about taking in-stay or going to discover ministry school or, or getting involved in a small group, when we're not intentional about growing, we be, our passion diminishes. Doesn't mean you won't go to heaven, but there's a difference between getting saved by fire and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and being a discipled follower of Jesus. If you want to be a discipled follower of Jesus, sharing your faith is one of the spiritual disciplines we are all commanded to do. 2 Timothy 
Paul said to Timothy, I remind you, fan the flame of the gift of God, stir up the gift of God in you. Second reason, fear of rejection. Fear of rejection is a false premise. It's really not true. And research confirms that. This may surprise you. This may actually surprise you. Tom Rainier did the research in 2015 on this subject. 75% of the people you talk to are open and willing to listen to you share your testimony. Many of them are willing to come to church with you. Only one out of four will reject you. So what are you afraid of? As a matter of fact, four out of 10 unchurched people, 40%, would be receptive to your genuine concern for their eternity, the state of their eternal life. They really would be. So Proverbs 29, 25 is good to remember the fear of man is a snare. You don't need to be afraid of being rejected. Number three, fear about answering the tough questions, the hard questions. Unchurched people, unsaved people do ask questions. And one of the greatest fears we have about sharing our faith is we're not going to have the answers. Well, hello, does anybody have all the answers? We don't have all the answers. Some of, some of the questions are, are trivial, and we've heard them a thousand times. Well, there's so many hypocrites in church. Well, that's true. But do you know of any profession where there's not a lot of hypocrites? The medical profession, the educational profession, in government, in politics? I mean, come on. There's hypocrites in every industry and every, every plane of life. That's, that's just a dodge. That's a smokescreen to get the crosshairs off the target of their life when you are confronting them with their eternal life and genuine concern for their eternity. Perfect love casts out fear anyway. 1 John 4, 18. You don't need to be afraid of rejection or afraid of answering hard questions. Uh, you won't have the, all the answers, I promise you. It is good to study and be prepared. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, or 3, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies in you. And it's good to study and be prepared to answer some of the tough questions. But the bottom line is just share your testimony, your personal testimony. Just share how God changed your life and the love of God in your life. Now, number four, being thought of as intolerant. This is becoming more and more real because we live in a culture that wants to be inclusive, right? I'm going to just say this as bluntly and as plainly as I know how to say it. Christianity is not tolerant when it comes to God and to Jesus. God said the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's the one true living God, the one loving God, the one God that demonstrated his love by giving his son Jesus to die for your sins. So Christianity is not intended to be tolerant, and Jesus never walked the fence on this. God is a jealous God. He doesn't leave any room for Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Mother Earth or any of the other New Age culture things that you run into. And you will get criticism for being intolerant. Jesus said it the same way. John 14, 6, a very famous passage of Scripture. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Bottom line. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Just share your personal testimony. Ask them to try Jesus. Just ask them to try Jesus because he will make a difference in their life. Number five, a growing disbelief in hell. A growing disbelief in hell. A place of everlasting punishment, a place of departed souls. Not a good place to be. Have you ever noticed, well, I... In the pulpits of America, the word hell is hardly ever used anymore. Very, very, very rarely used anymore. And I don't know if you stay up on this kind of thing or not, but there's a huge concern among the leadership of Christianity nationwide because even some evangelicals are beginning to say they're not sure they believe in hell anymore. And yet Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about it with his disciples. It's part of the theology of the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Hebrew Sheol, in the New Testament, uh, Gehenna or Hades. What was it Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18? Didn't he say, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it? If we fail to balance the message of grace, and Pastor Dustin did a good job on this just a few weeks ago when he talked about grace and truth. Remember that? Grace and truth. If we fail to balance the message of grace with the truth that God is just and holy, then we teeter on the precipice of false doctrine. We must never let God's grace or love muzzle the truth that hell is real. Denying the existence of hell directly contradicts the words of Jesus, as I've said, but here's another thing it does. It undermines the urgency of a person placing their trust and faith in Jesus. If there's no hell, what's the big deal? I don't need to be in a hurry to give myself to Jesus, right? Boy, it's quiet in here. Excuse me. A little five-year-old girl made me a cross to put in my Bible. So, Number six, busyness. One of Satan's most effective strategies to sideline Christians is to overwhelm them with lesser priorities, things that aren't important. Boy, this is a huge one, isn't it? This is a huge one. Obeying the great commandment and the great commission was put on your calendar 2,000 years ago. It was put on your calendar 2,000 years ago. And it has to be in your schedule. Lost people need to be on your to-do list intentionally. Lost, unchurched, unbelieving people need to be on your to-do list intentionally. It will not happen if you just hope that it happens. Final, number seven, we go to churches that do not reach the unreached. As Christians, we choose to go to churches that do not reach the unreached. Did you know that in USA churches today, it takes 85 church members to reach one lost person for Christ? 
So go back to those stories that I told you about hiking and the person over the precipice or the woman falling down on the, you know, down on the um, stairs or the man wrapped around a fir tree because of the accident. It takes 85 people to save that one person if you're in a church context. It's a matter of research. It ought to be more like one-to-one or two-to-one or three-to-one. Jesus sent them out two by two, didn't he? It takes 85. Did you know that 80%, approximately 80% of the churches in the United States of America are plateaued or in decline? Only 15% of them are experiencing growth, and that's through transfer growth because the church across the street or on the other side of town has a more charismatic pastor or they have a better children's program or youth program or they have a new building or whatever. How many percentage does that leave for new conversion growth in churches? About 5%. About one out of 20 churches might be experiencing new conversion growth, might be actually having a baptismal service sometime during the year. Because we choose to go to churches that do not reach the unreached. C.S. Lewis said this, there is no neutral ground in the universe. It is either claimed by God or it is counterclaimed by Satan. And that is true of people who need the Lord. They are either saved or they are lost. There is no neutral ground. Beloved, we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would awaken the sleeping giant. You know who the sleeping giant is. You can tell. It's the church. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit will awaken the sleeping giant, me and you and the church. I want to debunk the whole gift myth idea. It's important that we talk about this. It is very common for Christians to say, well, Pastor Jeff, evangelism is my gift. You ever said it before? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to be right up front with this, but I know. I know. Oh, Pastor Jeff, evangelism is not my gift. I'm called to do the nursery. I'm called to be on the board. I'm called to do technology. I'm called to be on the worship team. My gift is uh, maintenance. Now, let me be very clear. All of those are callings, and sometimes they're gifts, and they're all very, very important. Very, but to use those ministry callings as a substitute or a replacement for the command of Jesus to be a worker in the harvest of lost souls is misguided, and it is an excuse for disobedience. I'm not going to water that down. It's what the Bible says. Remember, the word of God is God-breathed and it's profitable not just for training and teaching. It's profitable for rebuke and correction. People say, well, I don't have the calling of an evangelist. I'm going to tell you something that may surprise you. Timothy in the Bible did not have the calling to be an evangelist. Paul sent him out to be a pastor. Timothy's calling was a pastor-teacher. And yet, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, his last letter that he ever wrote, he wrote 2 Timothy 4, 5, and he said, Timothy, do the work 
of an evangelist. Notice I said the word work. Do the work of an evangelist. My calling is not that of an evangelist at all. I have dear friends that are in the Ephesians 4 gift list, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, the office of an evangelist. I have friends, Werner Nachtigall in Berlin, Germany, Joe Oden down in Texas, uh, Dave Gibson in Minneapolis, Minnesota. These guys have more than one gospel conversation per day and they've given their lives to travel around the world to equip the church so that the average believer sitting in the church pew will get off their seats and into the street, if you'll excuse, that's the way they say it. We've got to get off our seats into the street. We've got to quit talking it and start walking it. I know what a called evangelist. I am not that. For me, it is purely an accountability, the word of God, and discipline. But more than that, it's experiencing the extravagant, extravagant love of God. There's a couple of passages of Scripture we need to read before we um, get any farther. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, that's a starting place. When you see a person that's lost, God's compassion in your heart. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Ripe fruit hanging from the tree, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the churchgoers are few. Is that what it says? Is that what, is that what it says? Maybe it says the harvest is plentiful, but the, those of us that are lazy are few. Is that what it says? It says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Evangelism is work. It stretches you. It puts you out of your comfort zone. You're not, it's not something you want to do. But you do it because you're commanded to do it by the Lord Jesus who demonstrated his love for us in such an amazing way that how could we not? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. John 4, 34 to 38. John 4, 34 to 38. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his what? His work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? Well, I tell you, would you open your eyes and look on the fields? They are already ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop of eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. Don't say it's four months and then the harvest. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Now stay with me here. This is really important what I'm about to say to you. How can you have eyes for the harvest if you don't have the harvest in your eyes? I'm going to let it soak in a while. How can you have eyes for the harvest if you don't have the harvest in your eyes? 
if all you do is spend time at church and life groups, life family circle groups, share groups with Christian people, spend your whole life with Christian people, how can you have eyes for the harvest if you don't have the harvest in your eyes? You have to be with unsaved people, unchurched people. You have to go where they are. You have to befriend them. Jesus, Jesus ate with sinners. That's what he was accused of. He was eating with sinners. I love that. I've done that many times. It's, it's fun. You'll hear things you don't usually hear. You'll see things you don't usually see. You may be offended a little bit by something, but let me tell you what. It's not a surprise to God. It's not shocking him. Why should it shock you? How can you have eyes for the harvest if you don't have the harvest in your eyes? It's work. It's work. So you say, well, Brother Jeff, Pastor Jeff, where do I begin? How do I get started? I got five minutes before I'm going to try to close here really quick. You start by adopting a prayer, care, share lifestyle. And it's not a model. It's not a formula. It's a way you live. Prayer, care, share, lifestyle. You choose an unsaved person whom you believe the Lord would draw and remember fruit needs to be right. Look for need, look for brokenness, look for lostness. Where is God already at work? Remember this, 70% of all salvations before the age of 18, I, I might have said 80% earlier, but anyway, and an NA survey said that the average Christian leader in America was saved around the age of 13. So if you're looking, it doesn't hurt to look at young people because that's where most first decisions are made for Christ. And then you pray for them every day, regularly and often. Most people don't think of prayer as being missional, but prayer is prayer's not a model or a formula. Prayer is evangelism. Prayer is a missional activity. When you start praying for a person, God goes to work and starts shaping their circumstances in their world. It's amazing to see how God does this. It's a lot of fun to start praying for somebody that doesn't know Jesus, and they don't have any idea you're praying for them, maybe. And you begin to see God start working in their life. In fact, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to join me in the triple one vision. Everybody listen carefully. I'm going to ask you to join me in the triple one vision, okay? Everybody find, pick, pray about one person that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. One non-believer. And I'm going to ask you to pray for them for one minute at one o'clock every day. One, 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 the triple one vision. One verse, one person for one minute at one o'clock. Now, you'll forget. The first week or two or three or month, you'll forget. You'll say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I meant to pray for Sam or Betty or Susan. Doesn't matter. Stick with it. The triple one vision. One, one, one. Start praying for a person at one o'clock every day for one minute. Okay? And after you pray for them, then you care for them. Do something kind for them. Mow their lawn, feed their dog, watch their kids, invite them over for a meal, get their meal, visit them in the hospital, surprise them with fruit from your garden. Care for them. And this I can promise you because I've seen it work over and over and over again. If you will faithfully pray, urgently, diligently pray for a lost person 
and you will show care and love and concern and kindness to them, the Holy Spirit will go to work and bring their circumstances and yours into a place where your lives will intersect and he will give you an opportunity to share about God's love. And you don't, it doesn't matter whether you do it loud or confidently or gently or softly or awkwardly or inwardly. God will make that opportunity for you to sow the seed. Remember, you can't save anybody, but you can sow seed, right? That's what it's all about. It's about sowing seed. Your effectiveness to share the good news of Jesus is not based on your persuasive ability. It doesn't matter whether you are hesitant or confident. You may be soft or robust, sweet or strong. It just doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit empowers your witness. Billy Graham used to say this all the time. He was a called anointed evangelist. And he used to say in his messages all the time that it's the Holy Spirit that empowered his message. He was just human. He, he was doing the best he could up there. But it was the Holy Spirit that takes the gospel and impregnates it and deposits into the life of people and then they are changed. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, if you will, please. And maybe the uh, worship team could come up and start one of their songs. I'm gonna close this morning by reminding you about one of the famous chapters of the Bible um, I'm a student of the Word. I love the Word of God. And, and one, I've done, in fact, I've done that here before. I've asked you about famous chapters of the Bible just to keep you on your toes. Like the love chapter is what? Of course, you know that. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Um, the, the, hall, the hall of faith, the heroes of faith is Hebrews 11. Good for you. Uh, this will give, be a good monitor or measure for where you are in terms of knowing God's word. A lot of people know about God's word. They don't know God's word. Uh, the shepherd's psalm. Where's the shepherd's psalm? Psalm 23, right. Okay, well, this chapter I'm going to remind you of right now is Luke 15. It's one of the famous chapters of the Bible. It's three parables all about lostness. Lostness matters. It desperately matters. In fact, it's so important to the Lord the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. It's so important to the Lord. Stay with me. Don't check out. It's so important to the Lord that the angels in heaven rejoice more over one sinner that repents than over 99 just people. We've probably got 99 people at church. You take this and then who's upstairs? Maybe not quite. I don't know how many. But the angels of heaven rejoice. There's more joy. The Bible says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 just people. Now, if that doesn't motivate you, I, I will tell you this personally as we close and pray. Nothing in all of life will give you more joy. Nothing will give you more joy than when God uses you to bring somebody to Jesus Christ. Because everyone can win someone. Everyone can win someone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. I'd like to ask everyone to close their eyes, if they would, for just a minute. And if you're, if you're in on this, this triple one vision where you'll identify an unsaved person and 
try to remember to pray for them for one minute every day at one o'clock. Would you just lift your hand quietly and then you can put it down? Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, and um, if you're here this morning and you really do want to touch people for Jesus, be used of the Lord in the harvest field, be a worker for him, and uh, it's something you've been afraid to do or untaught about or shy or whatever or just negligent. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're saying, Jesus, I'm all in. Teach me what you want to teach me and I'll get involved in outreach in a fresh way, a new way, in a way I've never been before. Would you just quietly raise your hand and then lower it? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we're not evangelists. We know that. But you've asked us to do the work of evangelism. And so first of all, we ask you to fill us with your love and compassion. When we see hurting people, lost people, lonely people, Lord, somehow we need to have compassionate hearts. Do a heart transplant in us, Lord. Give us harvest hearts. Oh, God, in Jesus' name, fill us with the love of God. And then, Lord, we ask you to take the fear away. Lord, uh, fear is a snare, and perfect love casts out all fear. So remove the fear from us and let us be courageous and bold, not in ourselves, but in the strength we have in trusting you, Jesus. And then, Lord, we ask you to give us divine appointments when we least expect it, to cross a path of somebody that really needs you and doesn't know you. Have us prepared at all times to give an answer of the hope that lies in us. We love you, Lord, and we pray for Celebration Church today. We pray that this church will be one of the 5% that is growing through new conversion growth. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for you're so worthy in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Go with God.